Hi, this is Caroline Zimmerman, Director of Data Products and Strategy at Profusion, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today, I have Caroline Zimmerman on the line. And Caroline, you know, when we talked, when we had our like initial screening, or what do you call it, just preview chat, mm-hmm. you said you learned you learned things the hard way, or you did some stuff the wrong way when it came to building data products. And I think this is back at your time at a, at a media company. Like, what happened? Like, what was your lesson learned? Tell me about that. I mean, the main lesson learned, and I think actually you're the one who phrases this the best, is that requirements are friendly lies. Oh, yeah. And I did not know that when I was first starting out. <laughs> I thought that you could you know, essentially take notes on what someone was asking for, go off and build it to their exact specs and be successful. And it turns out that you can build something to exact specs and suffer from poor adoption and, you know, just not be solving problems because I did it as a wish fulfillment laundry list exercise rather than really thinking through user needs. And, you know, that was many years ago now, but definitely I think there's nothing like the school of hard knocks to help you know why you need to do it the right way. Yeah, you know, right when you played that back to me, I immediately thought of school. (laughs) And why is it that everybody, well, so many people have gone through that. I mean, and I'm talking about designers too, and product people and Mm. data people, you hear this a lot. And I had this reflection, in school, you do the assignment that you're given, not, you don't figure out what the assignment is. And I wonder if it's, it's 20 years of following the instructions of doing the yeah. given assignment. And then you go into work mode and you're like, I wait for someone to tell me what to do. And then I do it to spec. Like, <laughs> that's not a teacher that's telling you what to doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think especially, you know, I have like kind of a people pleasing personality and I want to make people happy. And so when they ask sure. them for a thing, I think the way I ace it, because I want to get an A, is by doing exactly what they asked me for. And yeah, it took a lot of unlearning yeah. and new learning to shift that mindset. Yeah. Our managers and our our clients are they're not our teachers anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're there's a reason I gave that assignment and it's to learn this concept or whatever. It's like that's not what's happening. And the thing is, too, right, like, so I was working at a music company at the time, Mm -hmm. and music data is very, very big data. It's seriously big data because one stream is one row. So you can just imagine, you know, when you're at a global music company, that's billions of streams. And so if you need to build some dashboards or, like, other data products, right, like just data stuff that requires you to manipulate that data and you're trying to build at scale, from the beginning, it, it's an expensive mistake to just like do the laundry list of requirements because it takes a really long time to do that, to like build the engineering pipelines right. so you can build the dashboard. And I think that was the other hard knock was like, you know, what does it actually mean to do agile delivery? So what does it mean to think about user needs instead of user requirements? And then what does agile delivery look like on the ground? Was that time at BMG, was, was that the moment? Or like, I mean, e- even if like 
Because I, I know several teams, they struggle with the low adoption piece and you know I gave them what they asked for and then they didn't use it. But this has been going on for a long time in some organizations. And I'm like, well, okay, so if it hits you in the head three times, four times, at some point people eventually have a revelation and it's like, oh, wait a second, something's off here. I need to change something. Yes. What was it for you that made you realize like it wasn't just this client? Like there's a fundamental issue with with approaching these data products this way. We need to do it a different way. Was there something special about this BMG engagement that made it click there or did it happen later? No, it wasn't an engagement. I was there, you know, full time. That was a full time role. That was before uh-huh. my my perfusion time. And that was the moment. That was like a turning point in my career. That was when I shifted into product thinking, right? Like uh, into a more of a product mindset and just really deeply understanding why it is, like what that meant. Like I worked side by side with the VP of product. I knew what she was doing, but I didn't think it applied to the world of data at the time. I was like, user personas, why should I care about that? I'm building data things. (laughs) And yeah, it was really an aha moment of, I just need to totally shift my framework and my, my mindset. And I think that the other fundamental shift that happened, though, was actually once I had joined Profusion. And my first big engagement here was with a UK government client. And I think you know this from having had guests on your podcast from like UK government. Mm-hmm. Their DDAT function, which stands for Digital Data and Technology, like with it, many UK departments have that department. Many of them are like amazing at product thinking and at data product work. And that was my first time working in a truly multidisciplinary delivery team, understanding how product delivery and specifically user research and UX design contribute to creating a great data thing. And it was, yeah, just specifically the exposure to user research and meeting people whose profession it was to surface hidden user needs and ask open-ended questions and, you know, all that good stuff. That was the other aha moment. So it was the experience of failure and then the experience of what good looked like. And so it was like, okay, well, here's the problem. And this is a really great example of a solution. And how can I then like replicate that in the rest of my work moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm really curious about is, was it a really sharp like moment where something hit you in the head and was like, wait, like stop, or this is like a gradual slide into this product mindset, or was there something special about that BMG product that went wrong and then you were happening to be working next to the VP of product and it, it like the light bulb went off or was it sudden or was it a gradual thing? I'm just kind of wondering, what was that impetus that made you flip over? It was sudden to realize that what I was doing wasn't working. It was gradual to figure out what the solution meant. Okay. Because there's different bits and pieces. And I think also you can read a lot of theory, but until you have some lived practice and like some body knowledge of what a product approach means, I I think it just takes a while to like percolate into lived experience and to really know what it means to surface a user need, what it really means to try and do agile delivery in the context of data products. And... What I would say is that that aha moment of like, this is a clear cut, like I understand what the problem is, led to probably my most important and successful hire in my role at BMG, which was until then, I'd most, because I was building the data team, right? I started and led the data team there and I had mostly hired technical people or like kind of data proxy people, but it was more like, you know, people who were generally good at like talking to people. (laughs) And, but essentially they were requirement gathering 
people, right? And like the the key hire there was to say, I need to go find subject matter experts in like music data analysis. Because what that bridged was the gap between the data and insight and then what to do about it. Right. And the woman who ended up coming into the team, who's still there, just totally brilliant at like bridging that gap between the insight and the action. And also pulling out the right insights, right? Like from from the the data that we were surfacing. So yeah, aha moment for the problem, drip feed, and like yeah. gradual learning for the solution. It sounds like you had some good exposure to some design professionals or or UX research professionals. Like, tell me about one of those moments. Like, what what was it that impressed you about that in terms of achieving better outcomes? Like. Yeah, it was super simple. I mean, one of those moments was just watching the user researcher use the jobs to be done for it framework mm-hmm. rather than just putting, you know, before, I think I had an idea that personas were roles. Like your job title determined what persona you were going to be, right? right. And to watch her work in creating different buckets of people where people in different roles could actually be the same persona because of what they were trying to accomplish with the data that they were using. You know, like, were they trying to do a piece of analysis? Were they trying to influence policy? Were they, you know, I don't remember what the buckets were, but it was all about, you know, I'm trying to do this kind of work. And one person could be three different personas at different times because they were trying to influence policy On one project, they were trying to create some analysis on another and blah, blah, blah. And they had a a distinct user journey and user experience that we were going to need to provide in the tool according to what they were trying to accomplish rather than just what their job title was. Well, and just watching her organize qualitative research Mm -hmm. into actionable insight, just like watching that process made me realize it's, yeah, it's a skill and it's a profession, not just, you know, yeah, I think in the past it was like, oh, yeah, user researcher, someone who's good at talking to people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and just watching the frameworks, right, and like the way that she was able to use different frameworks according to the different stages of the project to sift through a bunch of words and put that into like features. Yeah, yeah. Just for those of you listening, you probably want a research that's good at listening more than talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot more about listening than it is about talking um, at the end of the day. But then it's also like they're data people. They're just a lot of them are qual data. I mean, there is quant UX research as well, but a lot of them are qual data, but it's still data. And we we had this funny revelation on the show with Clara Linder, who is the last episode. She's one of our founding members. (laughs) There's just this moment of how many data products are built with intuition not with any type of data and insight to drive those decisions, which is ironic because we're delivering insights products most of the time and decision support tools and things like this. And, and so it is data. It's just a different flavor of it. And it, it actually answers the why, which is the probably the most important question to get right, I would think, with these tools. I mean, it's not understanding the whys contributes, I think, to a lot of the low adoption problem that so many of these tools have. I don't know if you would agree with that, but well, I, do you? I would completely agree with that. <laughs> I, I would. And yeah. And also I think spending real meaningful time understanding the why I think I still sometimes go too quickly from the, you know, why, okay, I get it. 
you know, like let's move into trying to build a thing. I think also because I work in a consultancy environment and people want a thing. They're paying for a thing, right? And so, you know, just really having that reflex to just trying to gently come back to that why and spending sufficient time exploring it before going into solution build even when people are under a lot of deadline pressure and are paying you to deliver a thing. You know, it's just making sure I spend sufficient time on the why. Because yes, I completely agree with you. It's the most important thing. It's like the building block for everything else. It's the foundation. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. So you said they're they're paying for a thing. I guess I'm always trying to get beyond the, that thing because the while it might feel like, okay, there's, there's going to be some screens and there's going to be there there's going to be some nouns that come out but they're not really paying for that right they're paying for the benefit of the, the thing you're supposed to get and and sometimes i don't know that output focus can take us astray sometimes i i don't know it does. Just, yeah it, it, it can does. really and i guess what i'm saying is even though i know that yeah. I still sometimes get pulled in. I guess sure. I just want to say that to anyone yeah. who like sometimes still gets pulled in. And I, yeah, I still sometimes get pulled sure. in by the pressure around I want the thing. Yeah. Because I think especially in like situations where there is hierarchy, mm-hmm. especially if you're a bit of a people pleaser like myself, yeah. it, you know, it's like it's a skill to learn how to gently push back on that and yeah. like guide your your stakeholder to a different way of thinking that will deliver greater benefit in the long term, but maybe in a way that is new to them. And so yeah. there's a hand-holding that needs to go along sure. with that that I'm still learning how to do. Yeah, you can't just tell people, no, that's not what you... <laughs> there's exactly. Because the there's a want exactly. factor in there and negotiating the want versus what's good for them. You know, that's a whole dance that has to happen. And I, I yeah. totally get that. So I guess what I'm saying is I know the theory well now. Uh-huh. I'm still learning how to put that into practice. Yeah. Well, we all are, right? We're just, it's not like you're done. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not done with this kind of work. It's, exactly. It, you're playing the, in, the, these are design, product management, all this stuff. These are all infinite games. Yeah. They don't end. Yeah, 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 exactly. It is crazy in a way that like, even though I teach the theory, yeah. I still need to relearn that or like yeah. I continue to need to learn how that applies in real life and exactly what that looks like when engaging with a stakeholder or a client. You told me about a, like a luxury retailer you guys had worked with. You built like a propensity model. They they sold pretty expensive items. And yeah, t- tell me a little bit about that that experience there. Yeah. So that was a data thing that we built that predicted propensity for certain, like, as you said, like really expensive products. And it worked super well in the beginning when the model was, we make a bunch of expensive objects and then we have a bunch of inventory that we need to sell. Mm -hmm. And the salesperson can Mm -hmm. pick up the phone and say, Hey, we just got some of this beautiful product in. Why don't you come in and try it? So the propensity model worked really well because it was very actionable, right? It was like, oh, we have these beautiful objects. Why don't you come in and try one on, see how it fits, and figure out, you know, if you want to take one home with you. And then the business model changed so that they were only manufacturing after they had gotten an order. And so somebody could be in propensity, but there was no longer an excuse for the salesperson to ring them up. There was no inventory for them to come and try on. Mm. And so we needed to evolve 
what that data product was. It was a data product that worked very well, you know, like it had a good user interface into the CRM to make it super actionable. And that had high adoption, but then adoption fell when the business model changed. And so we needed to look again, like they needed a reason to call and how could the data product give them that reason? And then the propensity model, it didn't really work. And so we end, what we ended up doing was shifting towards an engagement model because it turns out that engagement is very predictive of a desire to purchase. Like if you're highly engaged with the brand, probably that indicates that you're in high propensity anyway. And what that allowed the salesperson to see was like, okay, what are the different touch points with the brand that they're engaging with? And you can just see that, right? It's not like an opaque algorithm. There's just like rules on what makes an engaged customer or not and what their touch points with the brand were. And that gives them talking points. So we shifted from a propensity model into an engagement model because it was a lot more explainable. It was rules-based. It also had like we built it with the salespeople. Like we had early adopters, like one of my favorite concepts that I learned from you, Brian, is build with users, not for users. Yeah, and not not my things. I don't know who said that, but it's You don't not know my... who said that. I got it from you though. I learned it from no, you. No, <laughs> I'm just spread, I'm spreading good ideas. I wish I remember who said that, but yeah. But yeah, it's really excellent. And by the way, I find that to be one of like the fundamental principles that I work with now. That's like a North Star, like build with users, not for users. And it was exactly that, it was just like coming up with the right test audience, you know, or like who are gonna be our early adopters? Who are we gonna build with? Who's excited about this possibility and how can we build it with them? And yeah, and that has been super successful because they built it with us and it is super transparent and actionable for them given the changes in the business model. And I think the reason that story is useful for me to come back to is just remembering that a data product evolves because user needs change and business models change and business priorities change and we need to evolve with it. It's not like you got it right once and then you're good for life at all. Right. Have you dealt with gatekeepers? Like in this case, so you brought salespeople and maybe that conversation started with the head of sales. And I know this is a, a struggle for some teams, which is, well, you can just talk to me. I want them on the phone and I don't really want to, you know, I know you guys are trying to do the right thing, but you know, I used to do that job so I can kind of tell you what my team needs from this. So just, just go through me and I'll get you what you need. So what do you need? <laughs> I'm stonewalling here a little bit on purpose, but have you had to deal with that kind of thing where you really can't like profusion as a, you know, your consultancy and you're trying to get access to the horse's mouth. It sounds like to, to really talk to the, the end user. Do you ever get that? Do you have to navigate that? I would say not so much that. It's more like they'll say yes, but then no one has any time. Right. So yes, the doors are open, but like basically people are paying lip service to it, right? Like, yeah, 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 we'll give you time. But actually there are so many more urgent things that the sales team, because especially like the sales team is on the front line of delivering the revenue numbers. Yeah. And the thing is we build a lot for, I mean, because I think that that's like, sales team enablement is one of the most powerful value creation levers that a data team can work, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm actually doing some research at the moment with my old business school on how private equity firms are leveraging data to deliver value because PE firms are, you know, they have a five-year investment horizon. They need to make the company more valuable than what they bought it for five years ago. How are they using data to do that? And actually like commercial team enablement has come up 
over and over again is like one, like the area where data products tend to deliver the most value. But yeah, of course, sales teams have a lot of other stuff on their plate, like chasing new leads and converting them and things like that. I find that the ways around that is enthusiasm of the end users who are participating in this tends to be a great predictor for like how successful the solution ends up being, I find. like, And so I think it's like, A, about finding a couple of people who are going to actually commit some time. So I think that's an important workaround. And then the second is just with that team of two or three, delivering some benefit to make other people feel like, oh, okay, wait, this is actually worth our time. This is going to deliver me something. Because I think that often sales teams get solicited from data teams like around data quality. Make sure that the data that you're putting in the CRM is of higher quality and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But don't necessarily receive benefit from that or see how it's actually helping. Like, well, why should I spend time doing that? I don't really see what I'm getting back for it. So I think it's just about picking a couple of people that gives you enough information to just try to do something that delivers some value and to be able to show that and then use that to get a couple more people on board. Yeah, it's the Bob and Jane now have this like thing on their side that I don't have on my side. You know? <laughs> Not that it's yeah. always a competition, yeah. but it's like they have an edge and they're pretty stoked about this thing. And this actually gets into to marketing a little bit too, which is there's a story there and, and a feeling of having that edge in this in the case of sales. And that can be really good if you need to spread this thing through an organization. Start with a small audience, show some tangible wins. Sometimes they won't want to share it if you give them a real edge and that it is a competitive environment. <laughs> that has not happened to you that, before. <laughs> well, yeah, it could. It's just being aware of that, that 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 could be the case. And in a way, that's actually kind of a good, pro- it's a fun problem because it means the, the thing you created actually has a lot of value there. It's almost like the secret weapon kind of thinking. But I, I think it's great to be thinking about how we spread this idea and by delivering value you know, early and, and to someone that can feel it and it's tangible that's a much easier way than trying to force something onto people. And then it takes them time to realize what's good. It's it's kind of like eat your vegetables, but they taste bad. Yeah. Yeah. Long-term you're going to get healthy, but like, that's a tough sale. <laughs> that's yeah. a hard sell where you know, in your case, it's like, well, my leads close faster or I'm getting, every time I get on the phone, it's a warm conversation instead of a cold one. Those are things that salespeople can feel and report back if that's what your tool is doing in that case. So yeah, that's cool. Tell me a little bit about how, I don't want to go super deep into process stuff, but like when, yeah. when Profusion talks to a new client, like, and you're going to build some kind of tooling or application interface dashboard, I don't know what the output is, but. Yeah, it, you know, it's for, usually like a, a predictive model or a dashboard. Yeah, yeah. So let's say, yeah, it's a predictive model and it's expressed in a dashboard or something. What's that kind of high level process? What do you ask for? from them in order, but and not, not the plumbing and the technical and then all the, you know, the API endpoints and data engineering and plumbing, not, not that stuff, but in terms of yeah. making sure you actually create some value for them. But what's that process look like? Who's involved in terms of roles and skills on your side? What do you ask from, from their side? Like, tell me about that. Mm. I'd say it's evolving. Yeah. And I think what that playbook looks like right now So it used to be that I thought that, oh, well, let's start with understanding your business strategy. And then how can we start thinking about where data slots in to enable that business strategy? 
And I think what I've learned with time is that a lot of organizations don't really have a business strategy per se. They just have goals per team, like targets per team. But that's not necessarily coming from like a data-informed view of what is driving value for them. And so I think that often, like the starting point that I'm taking more and more is actually let's do some basic customer journey mapping to understand where your drop-off points are. And uh, this is something who I've spoken about a lot with and learned a lot from Peter Everill, who you've had on your show and I know is part of the, one of the founding members of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. of the data product leadership community. Yeah, it's just starting with that high-level customer journey mapping to understand, you know, well, do you have a problem like more at acquisition or at conversion or at repeat, you know, because then that makes sure that whatever you're doing is very customer-centric and is all about moving people through your funnel because that is ultimately how you drive value is either getting more customers or converting them better or a combination of both. So understanding where are key drop-off points happening and how can data help you close the gap in those important drop-off points. Let me pause you. Customer journey mapping, the customer being your internal client, like a head no, of no, sales. No, no, the end customer. The person that's paying yeah. your clients to buy their products exactly. and services. Okay, so a real end customer. Okay, a got real it, got end it. customer. Yeah. Yep, a real end customer. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about what is the suite of data products that we could build to close the gap in the different drop-off points, and then what is the effort that would be required for each one of those initiatives, and how do we start thinking about prioritization that way? And of course, understand the business strategy as it exists on paper, have an understanding just of like the stakeholder map and who's trying to do what organizationally, like what are people bonused against, you know, like what do they care about within that organizational context, and then just like broadly, and, you know, customer journey mapping helps a lot with this. Just understand what the revenue and cost drivers are for the business. Like, understand how they make money. And then from that understanding, build out a prioritized roadmap and then pick the one that feels like it will deliver the most value for the least effort, but that also takes the context in mind. Like, what is on business leaders' minds at the moment? It's not just a revenue minus cost. It's also how are we going to position this to tell the right story? And so a combination of, like, that quantitative assessment, because it will, I mean, it will only be a guess anyway, right? And then the qualitative assessment, okay, what do we pick to start building out? Some initial value or some kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then probably go after like two or three, you know, just Mm -hmm. to explore because you'll have some assumptions that you need to test. Mm -hmm. And maybe you want to go after a couple before figuring out like, yeah, this is the thing we're really going to go after. And what Mm -hmm. I would say is I find again now because we're quite focused on like sales team and commercial team enablement, often the quick wins are around churn and, and like engagement modeling. And a turn especially, you know, that'll deliver, that tends to deliver a quick win if you can deliver it with the right end user experience so that mm-hmm. it's super actionable. That can really like quite quickly get some momentum going and get people excited about doing more. I understand that the starting with the journey mapping and look, you know, looking for opportunities within that where, where customers struggling or whatever it may be. Yep. But what was the ask prior to that? Because I'm guessing the client, you know, client doesn't ask you, could you come in and do some journey mapping for us? That's probably not <laughs> what the ask was, right? Maybe it was. I don't know. Like, 
So the ask is different. I mean, sometimes, because I guess I wear in some ways two hats, right? Mm -hmm. I have my data strategy hat and my data product hat, which are interrelated. Yeah. Because I think of a data strategy as just a portfolio approach to data products, right? Mm -hmm. It's like wrapping up the data products that you're working on in like a cohesive narrative. So often the ask is help us figure out what our data strategy should be, what we should be building in what order for what purpose. Okay, so it is a broad mandate or request. But I'd say the other times, and this is happening often, I would say at the moment, is Mm. people have built a set of data products. So again, usually dashboards and predictive models that have not been adopted and or just like a spaghetti mess. And they need somebody to come and help them just weed the garden, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But that still would often be a same, similar sort of sets because you would just want to make sure, okay, but like in order to know what to weed out and how to prioritize things, you need to have that broader understanding of how the business makes money and where there are lost opportunities for making more money. And then how do your data products fit into solving those, you know, drop-off points. Mm -hmm. When you build these journey maps, are these informed by research or are they mostly like self-reported back from the client about where they just feel, or I mean, maybe they know like the convert, I don't know, like they know why certain phases uh, things are happening. I'm just curious how, what, what went into those? It's definitely both. So like, you know, we'd usually start for a, it's usually a qualitative assessment to begin with, like tell Mm -hmm. us about what the journey looks like and how do we start recreating that with data to map out where those drop-off points are and what does the data tell us maybe some additional steps that you're not necessarily seeing about, you know, those drop-off points. And I would say there's very varying data quality for being able to do that well. <laughs> because if your CRM data is junky because people aren't inputting the data properly, it's difficult to do that accurately. Whereas if you're in like a B2C environment, for example, where it's all like digital transactions, then it's probably pretty accurate. So there's varying levels of massaging the data and cleaning up the data manually to get it to the right place where you can have a decent map. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there like a single biggest challenge being a director of data products, whether it's internally with Profusion, like your your, your own team or or with clients, but is there there one thing that stands out for you that's the biggest challenge? I don't know if there's one thing that stands out. I would say what I continue to have lots to learn about is just stakeholder management and understanding the interplay between what the organization needs to be successful, but also organizations are made up of people with personal interests and you need to understand both. And you need to understand both quite quickly, at least in a consultancy environment, because you don't get to go as deeply and you're not as embedded, you know? So I'd say that that's the ongoing place. You know, I report into our um, chief commercial officer and she's amazing at that. And so she's like my teacher. (laughs) She's just amazing. She's just amazing at reading between lines to understand, yeah, just the interplay of organizational context and people. Can you abstract one of those out or anonymize one of those for our listeners, like help them see what that looks like in a meeting or something that you observed one time. Uh, Okay. So there might be a very top down, 
like hierarchical culture mm-hmm. in a big corporate, for example, right? Yeah. And the team is super excited about the data strategy and like the data team, right? And the data products and like they're super excited about this, but it turns out that they're not going to get approval for their budget because the IT team is trying to stake their name in the ground to say, no, actually we own data, not you, because data is sitting in, I don't know, the sales and marketing team. And so there's this fight on who owns data and they think that data should be all these technical things and we're thinking data should be this instead. And so how do we approach that? You know, and like, how do we as external partners help to position the data agenda? And like, and, and like the people in that data team may be feeling quite threatened, right? Like, how do they put, you know, there's always a political context, you know? And, and I think this is maybe a bit more true in larger organizations. Yeah. But understanding that political context, I think, is, is key to figuring out how to position this stuff. Like, data products are built in a political context, yeah. And just being aware of that context, I think, is important. And I always want to, I don't know, I'm kind of literal. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I don't always, I don't always, um, political reading between the lines or like positioning is not necessarily my strength. And yeah, and I think it, it sounds kind of, I don't know, dirty when it's talked about as like politics, but I really just think it's like the interplay of organizational context and like individuals and how that all shakes out. Yeah. There's interests. I mean, if it's not politics, there's just personal interests and, and and all this kind of stuff. And I think the larger the company you get into, both in my experience, what I think I've heard, the larger it is, the less risk most companies want to take. Yes. They want to protect what they have now. Most yeah. change comes with risk. Whereas if you just keep the status quo, you probably will do okay. But yeah. at some point in leadership roles, when you get a C in your title, now you have some responsibility to not status quo may not be sufficient, but a lot of times when you get you know lower down the stack, it's just risky to change anything. It's yeah. much safer to leave things the way they are and to protect those interests and stuff. So part of it's like, well, yes, that's true. There's probably some opportunity. Like if that person wants to advance, you know, the client wants to advance and, and client here, I mean, this can be for people, data teams are m- mostly little consultancies anyways, you're, most of them are service or they're like service. They're supposed to be yeah. service organizations. It's just these are, you're not going to go away from them after three months. They're going to be there in three months because you guys are all employees. But if you treat it, you know, Jared Spool causes like the servant leader mentality, you know, that, that where it's like, you're sort of a servant, you're, you're actually leading them, but it's in a service context, not from a top down standpoint. It, it can yeah. be peer or even like I'm, I'm under you, I'm, but I'm here to help you advance your cause, you know, and it's what's, what are the benefits for them? And, and it's a, it's a leadership model. It is. And I think that data maybe more than any other function is transversal. I think data brings up politics mm-hmm. because especially with larger organizations, there are those departmental and team silos. And the whole thing about data is like, it cuts through those because it touches all the different teams. It touches all the different processes. And so I think, yeah, in order to build great data products, you have to be navigating that political context to understand how to get things done transversely in organizations where most stuff gets done vertically. This kind of topic of data products I'm curious when your clients come to you, are they coming in asking for data products or do you not even really talk about it that way? You just talk about benefits, what they're trying, you know, 
reducing churn or whatever. And that's kind of data products is your internal language. I'm just kind of curious about. Yeah, I think it definitely that. depends on the stakeholder. So with uh-huh. a data leader, we probably would speak quite clearly about data products yeah. because most data leaders, I think at this point, have a pretty good concept of what that is and what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. For a CMO or a CEO, we would not talk about data products. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would talk about benefits realization and making yeah. sure that you're solving problems for the sales team or the ops team. Are you seeing trends in terms of what the problems are that these well, your clients are having either making data products, understanding the benefits of them, jargon, I don't know what it is, but do you see any common threads there that you have to like, oh, okay, we're going to have to go into this during this call, <laughs> you know, run playbook C because we have to have this discussion first. Any, I don't know, just kind of open it. I don't question. know if I see any trends per se, but I think that since the world moved into a higher interest rate environment, mm-hmm. there's been a lot more scrutiny around what are the benefits of investing in, because, you know, yeah, CEOs aren't thinking about data products. They're just seeing their investment in a data team right. and not understanding or not able to see what the return is on that investment. And I think that there's more scrutiny than I've ever witnessed in like my career in data on that value question. And so I think it's never been a better time <laughs> for data products, people, because <laughs> yeah. like that's what we're about. And I think that... um You know, I mean, I came into the data product title only very recently. It's been like three months that I've had data products in my title, although I feel like I've been doing data product work for a lot longer than that. Yeah, yeah. But I think data leadership positions are data product expertise roles. Like, that Mm. is what it is. And I think that often it's been more technical people that have advanced into those roles Yeah, and I think, you know, if you follow kind of the LinkedIn verse in data, it's very much on every data leader's mind at the moment is just, yeah, how do you articulate benefit to your CEO and your board and try to do that before it's too late, you know? Yeah. So I'd say that's that's really the main thing and the, yeah, just never been a better time (laughs) to be a data product person. (laughs) And I think that also there's just like fatigue around making those investments in stuff that doesn't get used. I think mm-hmm. people are like desperate for, well, what are the solutions to yeah. build stuff that actually delivers benefit? Yeah. Most of the problems now are not tech. They're not going to be solved with code and tech. That that stuff is, quote, easier. It's like, there might be a lot of labor to set it up, but it's like, I think it's a known problem space yeah. to solve the technical part. The squishy part is all the stuff, the politics and self-interest and incentives. I mean, all that kind of stuff to me is the harder game that I think data teams need to get better at. They need to invest in that. That's what's going to solve the adoption problem, usually not like making the model 4% more accurate. And there's times when that might have a direct change in revenue or something like that. But I don't know. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. (laughs) I think I wouldn't be as... um as much a fan of your work if I didn't. And I think less is more at the moment. I think that there was a real emphasis on just like building more pipelines, getting more data in, get the data lake so we can store it all and it'll right. all just hang out there and we'll be, you know, and it'll One make lake us to sure. rule them all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll be data rich, but ultimately insight poor. I think that's what's happened <laughs> is that there's been an explosion of data volume 
yeah. and of accessibility to like KPIs and metrics and model building. And like, yeah, it's never been easier to gather data and like put it into a model. But I think in some ways that makes the data product work even more important because it's about what's important. How yeah. do you figure out what is signal and what is noise? In your yeah. thousand dashboards, I know so many data leaders who like go into new roles and inherit 2,000 dashboards. You know, like where do you even start picking out what is important and what isn't yeah. from that? And like the 10 different machine learning models just like hanging out in different levels of like production. How, how do you make sense of that mess? And I think it comes back to understand either the customer journey map or the growth model. They're, I think I use them interchangeably. Yeah. You know, what's going to make your company grow? And pick the five things. Like, what are the five things? And I guess my rule of thumb is, you know, dashboards should just always tell you if something is good or bad. Who cares about a metric? Who cares? Yeah. If you can't tell if it's good or bad and you don't know what somebody is meant to do if it's bad, you know, if it's right. good, great. But, like, if it's bad, then what are you going to do about it? Like, that flow. Yeah. So I guess, again, it's just never been a better time. Opportunity yeah. is ripe for data product work. Nice, nice. This has been super fun to chat. I want to ask you, I know you have a, uh, there's a meetup group. You're you're an American based in the UK, but there's like a data product meetup group there. But before we, we get into that and like how to, how to get in touch with you is, I just wanted to give you the last word. Is there any closing thoughts? Is there something I didn't ask that I should have or, or a piece of advice you'd like to give to people that are in your space? You know, there, I think a lot of our audiences look and sound like you in terms of the work that they do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what I honestly, Brian, what I would say is your work has been transformative to me and oh, my career. You. It's been so meaningful. And they're going to think I paid you to come on here. You already like, do. But <laughs> I think just, yeah, finding people to learn from mm -hmm. and finding people who have new stuff to say is precious. And you have been one of those people for me, like both through your own work and the guests that you've had on. And I've learned so much from what you've done for this community. And I guess we're like holding the flame in London with um, the data product management meetup. <laughs> yeah, what is that? That sounds nerdy and fun. I know you had my co-founder Nick Zervudis on the show and I know yeah. he gave a shout out to it already, but you know, we meet up like once every couple months. It's super informal. It's actually, I mean, you know, your listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm actually sitting in the social space in our office where we host this. Oh, okay. And you know, we'll throw out a topic usually for people to discuss, but it's also just a chance to chat. And I think what I like about it is that there's a lot of people without data product in their job title who come. So uh -huh. you do not have to be a data product manager to be someone who wants to come and chat to people who are at the intersection of like data, design, and business. Yeah. And we're here to hang out. Yeah, that's great. How often does it meet? Yeah, once every couple months or so. It's kind okay. of informal. We don't have like a steady cadence, but you know, anyone feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, Caroline Zimmerman, if you want us to add you to the listserv and definitely follow Nick Zervudis as well, who's my partner in crime on this. Excellent, excellent, cool. And where can people like get in touch? It sounds like LinkedIn's kind yeah, of the LinkedIn place to go. Yeah, LinkedIn is definitely the, the platform of choice. Nice, nice. And perfusion.com? Yeah, perfusion.com. I will tell people my email address. They're very welcome to reach out if they want okay. to like be directly added onto this distribution list and make sure they don't fall through cracks. It's Caroline Z at perfusion.com. And for our American listeners, that means Z, right? <laughs> Did I get it right? 
I always tell, we have, we actually have a Geo UK channel in the DPLC. That's like our first Geo specific channel. So I use different, I, I say nice. football instead of soccer when I'm in that channel. Yeah, Peter. nice, very nice. <laughs> I love it. So excellent, excellent. Well, Caroline, this has been super fun to to chat with you. And uh, thanks for, for sharing your, your experiences Thank here with us. Thank you for having me. You've been brilliant as yeah. always. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag ExperiencingData. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.